Today's sermon text is from Romans 6, chapter, Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Very very challenging passage, uh, both to hear and to explain, Uh, but it's a very important passage, and uh, it really is highlighted in our world today. You know, there's a book uh, about 10 years ago it was published, I think, called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. It was written by a man named, by the name of Ronald Sider. And in this book, he kind of chronicles that there is not much of a difference between the way the culture lives and the way professing Christians live. So when he looks at areas, for example, racism, spousal abuse, sexual disobedience, materialism, handling the poor and divorce, there is often very little difference between the lives of the professing Christian and the one who does not profess Christ. Now, do we have the gospel wrong? I mean, what is the snag? Oftentimes, we're committed to this idea that Jesus has died for our sins. The penalty of sin has been removed. We're sure excited about the hope that we have for the future, that in fact, our future is secure in Christ, but we often miss what is going on with Christianity in the life today, in the present time. Now, if you're here today for the first time, we've been going through the book of Romans. It's a New Testament book written by the Apostle Paul. And in this book, in the first four chapters, Paul really is like an attorney making an argument that all of us, men and women, regardless of ethnicity, uh, have kind of separated themselves from God due to their ungratefulness, that we're not thankful to God, that we live much of our lives never being very thankful, even though he's given us life and breath and everything, uh, or we're not honoring of God. We don't worship him. We don't see him as the greatest of all. And so there's this, there's this separation between man and God, and, and Ray was even pre- praying about that uh, regarding this kind of conflict with creation and with one another and with God. But God in mercy has given a gospel, and this gospel is providing a son upon whom uh, he has placed our sins and our shame and our guilt, and that through faith in him we can be reconciled. 
That's what we've learned in the first four chapters. But then in chapter 5, Paul begins to just marvel over the benefits of this salvation that we have. Incredible to be reconciled to the creator of the world. And then at the end of chapter 5, he speaks about the free gift three times. If you remember last week, three times he spoke about the free nature of this gift. No longer are we in Adam, but now, and when we were in Adam, we were unrighteous before God. Now we've been put in Christ and we've been made righteous. In other words, Paul is showing us in the first five chapters the radical nature of our salvation. It's free. It's unmerited. It isn't conditioned upon a life well lived. It's not conditioned upon things that you do or avoided doing. It is the sheer grace of God. It's grace, as one man said, in the extreme. In fact, it's so incredible that it almost could lead you to think that it doesn't matter how you live. And that, I think, is what Paul's getting at here in chapter 6, verse 1. We have a pivot point in this passage. Uh, where he's beginning to take this gospel. And look at the question, because he raises a question to us in chapter 6, verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, is the grace of God so profound that it doesn't matter how you live? This was the criticism among some that the gospel actually promotes a sort of ungodliness, because his grace will cover it anyways. And so it really doesn't matter how you live. John Stott was a theologian that just died in the last number of years, and he said, "If, if God loves and delights to justify the ungodly, then why should we be godly? In other words, if he loves to save the ungodly, then what's the purpose of being godly? That's kind of what I think Paul's going after here. And maybe that's been in your mind before. In other words, that, yeah, God doesn't, doesn't really look at my sin uh, in the same way because now I'm saved. I, I've heard many people say, no, I, I've prayed when I was younger, and they don't make any sort of connection between their commitment to Christ made at some time in their life with the rest of their life, with the balance of their actions and behavior. Perhaps you've seen a person that have has professed faith in Christ, but their life has not changed at all. Uh, Perhaps that's been in your own life. You haven't seen God move. You haven't seen this movement towards holiness. Well, that's the question Paul leaves us with here, that shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? What would you answer? Well, look at what Paul says in verse 2. He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, Paul's saying, heaven forbid, I mean, have you lost your mind? Are you crazy? If Christ has come and bore this penalty of our sin, bore the separation from God, that he would wash us clean, forgiven us, why would we continue in the sin that put him on the tree? I mean, I think what Paul's doing here is he's spent five chapters telling us about the greatness of this salvation. And he's been telling us about the greatness of the world to come. But now he wants to say, in this life, the gospel matters. That you and I are called to live a holy life where we do not continue to sin. That's what 6 and 7 and 8 are about. I think it's really challenging, cheap grace, or some people call it easy believism. You know, John Owen, who was a theologian back 
hundreds and hundreds of years ago, he says that they want to separate the doctrine of grace, which is free, unmerited grace, from the purpose of grace, which is holiness. I think that's what Paul's driving after. We can tend to look at the gospel backwards, I'm saved from the penalty of my sin, forward, I want an insurance policy from hell, but we don't see how it affects us today. You know, you, you often see bumper stickers on Christian cars, and really the theology of a bumper sticker is, is usually horrible. Just, just I want to put that right out there. I'm sorry if you have one on your car. We'll see it scraped next week from your... But, but one of the bumper stickers says, hey, Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. Well, that is true. There's no doubt about that. But it's not just forgiven. If we define Christianity to just forgiveness, then we've missed a huge part of it. A huge part of it that he not only saves us from the penalty of sin in the past, he will save us from the presence of sin when we're with him in the, in the heavens, but he also saves us from the power of sin today. And by the way, that's not just for the missionary or the minister, that's for all of us. All of us are called to this kind of not continuing in sin. So here, Paul gives a question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, of course not. We don't want to continue in sin if we died to it. So that's the question, the answer. But what Paul does then is he explains how we will not continue in sin. He explains how. And he gives us two answers from 3 to 14 in our passage. He says, <clears throat> first, you're a new person. You're a new person. And you have a new purpose. You're a new person and you're new and you have a new purpose. I want to look at just the first one, uh, that you are a new person. That's what we see in 3 to 10. You're a new person. And he's going to explain it in two ways, negative and positive. You're going to die with them, and you're going to live with them. You're going to die with them, and you're going to live with them. That's how we become a new person. Okay, let's look at death first. Notice in verse 3, he says, Do you not know that all of us, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You have a new life. So for the Christian here, you have a new life that's given to you. But this new life that comes to you is through this death. Now notice that three times, three times, uh, you heard about we know these things, right? He says in verse 3, don't you know? He says in verse 6, and we know. And he says in verse 9, and we know. This is something that we should already know. This is something that he's reminding them of. It's really important. We can forget who we are. We can forget what Christ has done for us. And so Paul is taking the time to remind us that we know these things. It's important to know them. The first thing that we know is that we died with him. Now, this baptism that, that you heard me read, we're baptized into Christ and we're baptized into his death. Baptism here, I think, is just a spiritual union that he's speaking about. We'll talk about the water union in a moment. It's a spiritual union where we are in Christ. We are with Christ. You see over and over, we're with Christ. We're united with Christ. We're, we're with him and in him. And, and the first thing he says that we're baptized into his death. Now, what does this mean? Well, I think Paul's saying that by faith, when Jesus Christ died, we died with him. When he died to the penalty of sin, we were with him. When he died overpowering the power of sin, we were with him. 
You see the same thing in verses 6 and 7. He picks the same idea back up again when he says, we know that our old self, again, we know this, our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The body of sin, I think, is just our physical bodies. Your bodies are not sinful, but sin is expressed through our bodies. And he's saying that the old man, that is the pre-converted Tom, prior to coming to Christ, that old nature that we inherit from Adam has been crucified. It's been rendered inoperable. So, and you see the same thing in verse 8. He says, now, if we have died with Christ. So Paul's point is this. To become a new person, we first have to experience death with Christ, which we do when we're in union with him through faith. So he's paid the debt. He's settled the score. He has made things right. Now, I know most of us are thinking right now, but I don't feel dead to sin. I, I don't feel I feel quite alive to sin, actually. In fact, you might want to agree with this one comic that I saw that says, I haven't really died to sin, but I did almost faint once. You know, th this idea that I, I don't, we, we don't, it feels like it's gripping us still. So let me try to explain it a little more clearly. To say that we have died to sin is not, let me explain it by what it's not. To say that we died to sin is not saying that we will be sinless in this world. There's only one sinless person. It was Jesus. We will not be sinless. We will struggle with sin until the last breath. Uh, to say that we have died to sin is not to say that sin is without power. Sin does have power, and we'll talk about that more in the following weeks, that, that sin still resides within us, that sin dwells within us. It still influences. It still tempts and our lives really give evidence to that as we fall in sin often. To say that we've died to sin is not to say that we still don't love it sometimes. We do. I mean, th there is an attraction. There is a draw to sin. Otherwise, we would not do it. Sin holds itself out with a promise for your pleasure. And we want to be pleased. And so there is that draw that we still often love it. And then last... Uh, sin, to say that we're dead to sin, does not mean that we slowly or incrementally move away from the sin nature. No, he said it's dead. It's not mostly dead. It's dead. So, so when he says that we've been dead to sin, I think what he's saying is that in union with Christ, the old nature that we have that was so prone to sin, we didn't even know it, that has died. That's our old nature is no longer controlled by sin. Our old nature has died. We are no longer controlled. It doesn't mean you're removed out of the influence of sin, but it simply means sin cannot control you. It cannot dominate you. It can be like a terrorist. It can attack and it can move and it can intimidate, but it does not grip you anymore. It doesn't have control over you anymore. That's what he's saying here. Now, let me give you a case in point. So Augustine was a church theologian of the early 4th century, and before becoming a Christian, he lived with a woman. He had a mistress for a number of years. And uh, when he came to faith in Christ, he cut that relationship off, and he, he was, if you will, parted company with this woman. Well, uh, he writes at one time, he sees her in the city, and she calls out to him and comes to him. And, of course, he continues to walk. 
And so she says to him, uh, she says, what's the matter? It is I. To which he responds, the matter, dear lady, is that it is not I. In other words, he has died to that relationship. That old relationship, that old nature that was in relationship with her is now dead. I think that's what, that's what Paul is telling us here. Uh, that the way that we overcome sin is to recognize first that we have died. It no longer dominates you. It no longer, it no longer controls you. N now, corresponding to that, if you will, see in the second part of 3 and 4, uh, you have been made new. I'm still talking about this new person. First you had to die with him, and then he makes you new. Look with me at verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So what, what Paul's saying, it, the question was, should I continue to sin that grace may abound? He says, no, you died to that life, but now you've been made alive. See, baptism with Christ isn't just for the forgiveness of sins, he literally is bringing new life into you. So you notice where it says in verse 5, he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That word for uniting is a, a term out of the world of horticulture. It, it's, it's where they take a branch and they graft it into a vine. You know, that, that branch receives life from the vine. So being grafted in union with Christ, Christ is now giving us life, giving us newness of life, a life that's pursuing holiness and pursuing him. And the certainty for us, the certainty that he will give us life and newness of life is found in verses 8 through 10. He says, now if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So Paul is showing us the certainty of your new life. Even, even right now, if you're wondering if you've seen it, the certainty of that is tethered to your union with Christ. That as he has died once for all, now he lives to God, and now he gives you power to live. So, so you see, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? He said, of course not. You've died, and now you're growing in the newness of life that is found in your union with Christ. Now, that's what baptism is to represent. The water baptism that we were to have today, we're not short on water, no doubt, uh, but we'll be doing it next week. The water baptism is a picture of what I've just said. You know, the word to baptize is a, is a word that means to dip or to immerse or to plunge. It was used in secular Greek literature for boats sinking or people drowning under the water. And, and, and what I want to remind you, and, and this was obviously planned for the baptism Sunday, you'll just have to remember it, was that when a person goes into the water, it's displaying the union we have. The person is getting up and saying, I'm making a promise to follow Jesus Christ. And, and by virtue of them going into the water, they go down into death, symbolizing they were with Christ when he died. They hesitate under the water. He was buried. And the purpose of mentioning burial is he actually did die. 
and we in him actually have already died. We'll never die again in the sense that we'll never be spiritually separated from God. And then they're brought out of the water. And as the water goes off of them, it kind of pictures the cleansing away of sin and the walking in the newness of life. See, God's intention was always to have a people that obeyed him from their heart. That's the promise in Jeremiah. That, that would ha he would have a people that would turn away from the rebellion of their lives and they would pursue him because they love him. That was the intention. And that's what baptism symbolizes. That's why we baptize people publicly. We don't do it privately. Uh, publicly because it's a public affirmation. The, the candidate is confessing to everybody, I want to be identified with Christ and I want to do it with you. And they need you. That's why baptism is always associated with membership in the church because the new life they're beginning has to take place with other people who have been baptized so they can help one another along in the struggle that I'll speak to that we have with sin. Now, another metaphor to help you understand baptism, and this helps me, hopefully it will help you a little bit. I, I look at it like a marriage, actually. You know, when Carol and I got married, uh, in a way, our single lives died. Uh, we left them. And we still had the friendships and everything, uh, but, but when we got married, I didn't just go to the ball game when I wanted to go. I wanted to talk to Carol and what had she planned? Or I didn't just spend money as the way I wanted to spend it, as I may have done before, but, but I wanted to speak with her. We were a union now. We were together. We, we talked about these things. We asked permission of each other for these things. And we grew, and as we've grown in oneness, again, we didn't lose the relationships, but the relationships did change because now we're a couple. Baptism is saying, I am walking in a union with Christ. And he is my groom. He is the one with whom I am going to grow in a oneness. That as we grow in oneness, his power moves in me and I can walk in holiness. So, so that's what he's saying here. He's saying, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? He said, of course not. You've died and you've been raised. You're a new person. You know that. Now, let me, let me give you a couple takeaways here. Uh, I don't want you to confuse this with personal reformation, uh, turning over a new leaf. You know, we're awash in self-help books, and, and we think that, well, if I can just get my life in order, or I just need the peace that I can get from the gospel. Uh, this kind of change that I'm talking about, it does not come from within you. It comes from above. Only God can take out the heart of stone, crucify the old man, and bring a, in a heart of flesh. This has to be done by God. If you try to do this on your own and try to become moral in such a measure that God would find you acceptable, you will only fall into deep despair. In, in fact, Nicodemus, I mentioned him a few weeks back, would be an example of this. A very moral man. He was a, a Pharisee. He was a religious man. You'll find him in John chapter 3, a good man. He knew much about God and I'm sure tried to live for God in many ways. But when he met Jesus... Jesus said, you must be born again. You must be born again. Uh, you, cannot, you cannot be reconciled to God through man-made, self-generated efforts. So, so do not, you know, when we talk about this death and resurrection, this is a divine work of God. Now, secondly, I would say this, that uh, don't presume upon the grace of God when you, when you hear this. 
In other words, some of us may think, well, no, I, I prayed when I was six years old. I made a commitment to Jesus. Oftentimes I'll hear that. People will talk about a commitment they made early on, and then, thankfully, they're honest. They say, well, I wasn't really walking with Jesus for another 10 or 15 years. And I always try to ask the person, I say, what was going on during those years? In other words, we don't want to presume upon the grace of God. If we have, in fact, been born again, then our life begins to change. If you've prayed a prayer and, and you cognit cognitively believe in Jesus, and yet your life has experienced no change, it, it might mean that you're not a Christian. I'm not, trying to, I'm not trying to raise doubt. I'm just trying to introduce discernment here that we want to see, has our life changed? Have we died to the old man, and are we living in Christ? You know, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And yet not I, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So the person that has been born from above, yeah, we still struggle with lying, but we repent when we do, and, and we have a distaste for it. Uh, we may still struggle with lust, but, but we're fighting it. We're going to grab a, another friend to help us walk through and, and hold me accountable. Ask me good questions. We may struggle with bitterness, but we're going to repent of that, and we're going to seek reconciliation. We might struggle with anger, but then we're going to look at our own heart and realize that God was probably angry at me, and he's forgiven me. I need to move in forgiveness. You're going to see this incremental move towards holiness. Do you see this in your life? I don't want you to be caught up in kind of a spiritual amnesia, forgetting what he's trying to tell us. Because he hasn't told us to do anything right now. Do you realize that? In all these verses, he's just told you who you are. I want you to know that you've died and you've been raised. Uh, so, so how do we... You know, should we continue to sin that grace may abound? He says, no, you're a new person. You've died and you've been raised. It's only then that he begins to tell us what to do. So you're a new person in verses 3 to 10, but notice you have a new purpose in 11 to 14. But he doesn't tell you what to do until he tells you who you are, because you can't do it until you know that. Now, I want you to realize that this is the first command in the book of Romans. The first time we hear a command, Paul has been talking to us about what God has done. Paul has been talking to us about where we were outside of God. This is the first command in verse 11. And it's, it's really giving us a new purpose. Now that you've died and you've been raised, here's what I want you to do. And so this is kind of an application for you. This is the implication of the Gospels. Do you realize that when Paul says, should we continue to sin that grace may abound? He doesn't challenge their understanding of the gospel. They got it. It's so free. It almost inclines me to think I don't need to do anything. He's taking issue with their response to it. In other words, when you see the freeness of the gospel, it doesn't lead to license. It leads to holiness. And that's what he's getting to in 11. Look in 11 with me. He says, so you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You have to consider yourself. Uh, Paul is saying you have to think. That word consider is an accounting term. It means to, to count or to consider as true or real. That you have to consider yourselves dead to sin. It's a continual thing. You don't do it once when you're a kid and never do it again. You continue. Every day you're considering yourself dead to sin. 
Now, I, I know that's, that's trouble. You know, Paul's telling us to think. He says, I want you to think that you're dead to sin. I am not advocating positive thinking here. I'm not saying, you know what, you just got to tell yourself you're happy. You know, my dog died, I lost my job, and I wrecked my car, but I'm happy, I'm happy, I'm happy. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about positive thinking. See, the problem with humanity is that we often, we often want to feel something first, and then we think it's true. Okay, Christianity is moving it back. He's saying, no, you think first, and then you feel. You think first. He's saying, consider yourself dead to sin. You have to think that way. Now, we have an example of this, for example, in chapter 4 with Abraham. Old father Abraham. So he's 100 years old, and God says, you're going to have a son. He looks across the table at his bride, and she's close to 90. And I don't imagine they're feeling like this is, really, is really going to happen. But God told him, you will have a son. Abraham believed God, and he believed in the power of God. You know he did because they moved towards being intimate. And she got pregnant. He didn't feel it first. He believed it first. And, and that's what he's asking us here, that you have to trust that you are dead to sin. Yeah, let me give you a more modern-day example. Uh, I shared this, I think, last year with you, but it bears repeating. You know, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a preacher in, in London in the mid-20th century. And in his preaching of this text, he raised this example about the Emancipation Proclamation. This is where the slaves were given their freedom, legally. Uh, it was during, actually, the Civil War, not after it. But uh, they were given their freedom. And what he reports was that many of the slaves that had spent the bulk of their life in slavery were still terrified and intimidated by their previous masters in other words they were free they were they were declared free it, it was it was law it was legal but they didn't feel free but they were free and and that's what happens with us a lot is we don't feel dead to sin we feel quite alive to it and i'm asking you to consider prolonged deliberation that no he has crucified your old man He's given you new life by grafting you into the Son and that you are to consider yourself and walk in light of the fact that you have died to sin. That's the first command. It begins with the mind. The feelings follow. We see the same idea of thinking, feeling in Romans 15, 8. He says, may the peace and the joy of the Spirit be yours in believing. So it's through faith, it's through believing that these feelings of peace and joy come. We just get it backwards. Okay, the second thing you see that we're to respond to this overture of love, of course, is there in verse 12. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Uh, there's an active war that we're to make with sin. So the Christian doesn't let sin reign. Now, listen, before I was a Christian, sin reigned. I, I didn't... It, it, I didn't feel like I was sinning. I could always justify my behavior. I could always rationalize it. I could always make excuses for myself because before being a Christian, I didn't see it as sin. It was like sin to Tom was like water to a fish. It wasn't, maybe the big deals would kind of perk my interest, but I could justify doing anything I wanted to do. And I think you have that same experience. But now 
that we're Christians, we have, a, we have a new, we're recalibrated. We now understand the nature of sin. And so he says, don't let sin reign. Engage in the fight now. You weren't fighting before. You had your weapon down. Now pick it up and fight. And the idea of fighting sin or the idea of not letting sin reign, this is what it means. Don't think simple thoughts on sin. And don't, if you think, ah, that's a small, that's a small deal. It's no big deal. Nobody's hurt and it was consensual anyways. Well, hold it now. How does God view the sin? Well, take a good long look at the cross. How does the cross display God's attitude towards sin? We want to fight sin. We want to confess it when we commit it. We want to seek help from other people when we struggle with it. We want to pick up our weapon, our shield of faith, and our sword of the Spirit, and we want to pick up and engage the fight. Folks, many of us have lived a bulk of our Christian lives just laying our weapons down. And and here, again, John Owen has a word for this. He says, if you loose and relax your thoughts of sin, you risk clinging to a false spirit of grace. While there is still the power of sin in us, If it abides and resides without distaste, diminishment, or fight, we must ask, are we actually dead to sin? So so there's an active role here to play. Listen, justification, your participation is unneeded. It's unhelpful. But in sanctification, your participation is essential. It's going to be celebrated. It's necessary we are called to engage in this fight with sin. And we need one another to do it. And that's the benefit of the church. You cannot fight alone. You need others to fight with you. And then the third encouragement we receive from this new person, this new purpose, is found in 14. Look at that with me. He says, For sin will have no dominion over here, over you, since you are not under law but under grace. This is interesting. It's not a command. It's really a promise. He's promising that sin won't have dominion over. Paul's encouraging you, engage in the fight. Why? Because it cannot dominate you. You're no longer under law. Now, let me explain that. Being under law, you know, the law was given to constrain sin. It also revealed sin. But, you know, if you're driving down 540 and you see a police officer on the side of the road, uh, you'll tap your brakes if you're speeding. Even though you're late to a meeting, you'll tap your brakes, you'll slow down, Because the law is constraining you. You don't want to pay the ticket. And so the law has a temporal effect in restraining sin, but it does nothing to your heart. As soon as you pass, the foot moves to the right, and you start speeding again because you're late. It doesn't change you. It doesn't move you to holiness out of devotion for God. But he says you're no longer under law. God's not keeping a list of all the shameful things you've done. He says, you're now under grace. In other words, you've been forgiven. You've been given a gospel. God has committed to you. While you were dead in sin, he made you alive. God demonstrates for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, he died for you. God displays his love to the ungodly by giving us Christ. What he's saying is, our holiness is motivated by the gospel on how God has loved us. I mean, my, my, my motivation to remain pure and to walk in obedience in my marriage isn't born by a threat that Carol could bring to me, but is born by my love for her. That's what keeps. 
us moving in holiness towards God. It, it's a love for God and knowing his love for us. In fact, one author, former commentator, he says that no sin can be crucified. In other words, no sin can be put to death, either in heart or life, unless it first be pardoned in conscience. In other words, if you don't feel the blessedness of being forgiven for your sins, it's hard to fight sin. But if you know that Christ is hung on that tree to forgive you of every one of your sins, you're not drawn to him. You're drawn away from him. And you want to walk in holiness. And that's what changes us inwardly rather than a law just constraining us outwardly. This is what God's intent. God's intent was to make a people for himself. He says this in Titus chapter 2. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. That's Jesus coming, bringing the gospel. It says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. Remember at the beginning, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, we're to live in the present age godly lives, waiting for our blessed hope. We're waiting for that blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's what he wants us to be pure. And folks, we want that. You know the sense of backwash, of guilt, when you give way to the temptation of sin. John Calvin said it this way. He says, we are not cleansed by Christ so that we can immerse ourselves continually in fresh dirt, but in order that our purity may serve the glory of God. So here's what Paul's saying. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Of course not. Let me exhort the Christian here. Of course not. You have been made new. And your newness has come through a death to the old man and now you're grafted into Christ. You're asking him for power. You're saying, I love the sin. Give me power that I may fight the sin. You're asking, you're considering. I've died to that sin. I don't want to walk in it. I'm not going to let it reign in my life. I'm going to call others to pray for me. That's what the Christian does. He's a new person with a new purpose. For the non-Christian, I don't encourage you to try to be more moral. It will lead you to despair and frustration. I would simply, to the, to the person here who is still debating the issues of the Christian faith, I would ask you to just ask God to open your eyes to the glory of Christ. It needs to start from above. We're justified, we're declared innocent, and then we begin to walk in holiness. That's the call upon this church. We're called to be a growingly holy people. Will we falter and fail? Yes, we will but we will immediately repent and we will take our shame and we'll run to the cross and there we will find acceptance and joy because of what Christ has done for us. And you keep doing that and you will walk away from sin because you will not want to displease the one that has offered himself for you forever, that you can live considering yourself dead to sin, but alive to God. So let's take a moment now and just consider these things in our own heart. Perhaps you are struggling in some issue of lust or bitterness or anger. It doesn't have to be a deep, dark sin. It can be self-righteousness. Well, let's take the time to perhaps confess these things silently or perhaps even confess the fact that we have not engaged in the fight. And then I'll pray for us in a moment 